Welcome, welcome everyone to the Mindful Conversations Matter podcast. If you don't already know who we are, my name is Tina Onkasawan, the moderator of the podcast and a language acquisition teacher on special assignment for the Valverde Unified School District. Also with us is the hostess with the mostest, Adriana Vasquez, coordinator of language assessment and the language acquisition team here at Valverde Unified School District. The purpose of this podcast is to create a safe space to reflect in open and brave conversations, a space to listen to multiple perspectives about a variety of topics that we are faced with on a daily basis. We are so excited for the episode today. We have an amazing guest with us. Adriana, would you like to please introduce him? Absolutely. Today we have, we're so excited to have Dr. Frank Perez here with us, a good friend, a brother, um, who's going to share some thoughts around social justice and change in our community, in our society. And so he's going to share a little bit with us um, about who he is, his background, but with us here in Valverde, he's been a very key um, component in our development of ethnic studies courses. And so um, we thank you, brother. Thank you so much for being here, sharing space with us. And so we'll go ahead and get it started by asking you, how are you feeling today? Doing pretty good, actually. Um, it's been a busy day uh, in kind of view of social justice and change, working with um, different community partners here in the Riverside area and in Valverde. And, you know, uh, as much as it is always um, exciting work, it is still exhausting. So we always want to be mindful that, you know, even when we're doing good work, that we want to be careful and cognizant of how we're feeling. And so, yeah, I'm feeling both excited, a little tired, but, you know, overall, I'm doing good. That's awesome. And yes, you're, you, you, it's, you're always so busy. So we appreciate that you're making time mm-hmm. um, for us today. Um, if you can tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah. So um, I'm originally from the area. Uh, I've uh, I lived in San Jacinto, which is a little east of here for um, about 24 years. Uh, I'm originally from the East LA area. We lived in a small area called Maywood. That's kind of sandwiched between Downey and East LA. Um, I grew up, you know, mostly here, went to all schools. Uh, I went to Mount San Jacinto College and got my AA, uh, transferred on, got a bachelor's from Cal State got a master's from Fullerton, and then got a master's and a PhD from UCR. Um, you know, I've been teaching ethnic studies for roughly about eight years now, um, now in a full-time position at Long Beach City College as the founding member of the program and department and been doing a lot of great stuff there. Very excited um, for what was coming next and, you know, got... Uh, connected with Valverde due to um, Vice President of the School Board, Matt Serafim. Always big shout out, great friend of mine and colleague. And, you know, got connected with uh, folks here and been doing a lot of great stuff, uh, building the program and and doing those kinds of things. So um, just kind of a little bit about me. Um, you know, I'm a first-generation college student. Uh, I grew up working class. My family's Cuban. Um, they came from, uh, came from the island in, in 67. I uh, have a strong kind of connection to my Latino roots, um, to my immigrant and working class background. And that really motivated me to be an advocate for change for those individuals and just been trying to do what I can as much as I can, wherever I can. So that's why, you know, even though I'm at Long Beach and I now live in San Diego, still heavily connected to the IE, still heavily connected to Riverside, really want to help out as much as I can here and, you know, and be uh, a person who kind of stretches across spaces and does, does a lot of things as much as I, you know, humanly can, right? Mm-hmm. So. Yes, absolutely. Um, so you mentioned you're Cuban. Are you Cuban from both mom and dad? Uh, so just just from my dad. So my dad and my abuelos came here in 67. My uh, my mom's family, they're Anglo, so they're white, they, um, but they also lived in Maywood. So Maywood was a historically working class community. Um, they were subsidized by... Um, a lot of big industries. So Firestone used to have a manufacturing plant in Southgate. Um, a lot of f- folks worked there. My uh, grandfather actually worked in a uh, oil uh, processing plant for Sears Oil. And then he also was a postman um, when he got out of uh, World War II. And uh, yeah, and then my grandparents were um, you know working class. My uh, willow was a welder. He worked at a welding f- uh, plant and my um, abuela was a seamstress, so she worked in the garment district in, in downtown LA. And um, yeah, and so we kind of grew up with this kind of mixed racial background, um, but a lot of um, stuff that we did was still very heavily Cuban. So um, 
you know, I learned how to speak Spanish. I learned all the cultural values, all those kinds of things growing up. And so, um, although I do really recognize my bi biracial roots, um, uh, in a lot of ways, I still have a lot of, um, deep, meaningful connection to the Latino communities. And when I was living in San Jacinto, it was largely Mexican immigrant community. So I, as I was growing up with my Cuban traditions, I was getting exposed to a lot of Mexican traditions because of my friends, you know, so I ate tacos, you know, my grandparents always make fun of me because I, you know, I like lengua and cabeza <laughs> and the kind of the, the, the oddity meats, but said that the Cubans don't normally eat because it's mostly a pork and fish based diet. Um, but yeah, it's, it was really cool. So I, I feel like um, a big hybrid of a lot of different things. And of course, as you meet friends, right, you eat other stuff. You know, I, I love um, all kinds of food, Japanese, um, lots of different, different Asian cuisines, a lot of Mediterranean cuisines, all of that stuff. Like, you know, and that's what's been really great about being in this work is that as you get to exposed to more people um, from different cultural backgrounds and in terms of conversations and collaborations, you see so much stuff. Um, I always like uh, when I teach on, you know, Latino history, I I t mentioned about, you know, the kind of Arabic roots in uh, er the Arabic dialectical roots in Spanish. And, you know, Spanish has uh, almost 30 percent of its language tied to, you know, you know, Arabic languages in that sense. And so it's really cool to see those kinds of connections and have those conversations and realize that, you know, we really are children of the world and we want to celebrate it. Right. And that's what's great about Valverde is that we have such a, you know, awesomely diverse student population faculty, you know, and an admin um, population. And so we do really great stuff for folks here and, and really honor all of the stuff that come or all the, those important elements that come from our backgrounds. Yeah. And we're so interconnected. I, I love what you're saying. Um, so it sounds like you've had the opportunity to be in so many communities. Mm -hmm. And so um, just taking it anywhere, if you'd like to share with us, mm -hmm. it, just our local community, the broader community, the society, the world, mm -hmm. what would be those positive elements that you can identify mm -hmm. in, in just, again, in any micro or macro level that you'd like to share with us about? Yeah, so... I mean, I always tout the IE wherever I go. And, and one of the things that really was instrumental for me or was important, I should say, for me coming back to UCR to getting a PhD was that I knew that the IE Riverside, you know, the Valverde area was very, um, you know, powerful in that they do great work, right? We have great teachers here that are doing good things in the classroom. We have a lot of students who come from, you know, some embattled backgrounds, but are doing great things in terms of becoming change agents and leaders. And so I wanted to study that because um, I knew that that had value for other folks to learn from, right? Like when you um, engage in academic work, you're thinking about collecting data, building new knowledge that can be shared with the world. And, and that's what I saw was we had values of social justice in our community, of working classness, of, of family, of community that are, are very key. And I think that's one thing that defines the IE in a lot of ways that even though um, we have a lot of diversity here of folks from all over the world, you know, really, even though there are those kind of pockets of, of you know, ethnicities and, and cultures in different spaces, we do see a lot of collaboration. Um, you know, we, we are becoming much more of a metropolis in that sense. And I think that because um, folks recognize that, you know, they come from these working class backgrounds, that it's about working together and being together and honoring families and sharing our stories that, I always recognize and share when I go to other places when people are like, well, what is this place called the IE? I've never heard of this before. And I'm like, oh, well, let me tell you, it's, you know, 54 school districts and we have all these different immigrant communities here and we have all these different like elements of culture and racial diversity here that are really important to learn from. And so I think that's what we have is that we have a lot of really interesting and, and important stuff, you know, music, food. Um, culture, you know, we have um, the Great Inlandia Institute. We're now going to have the Cheech Center here, which is going to be awesome. The Chicano, you know, Art History Museum. Uh, I mean, we've had different organizations. Our indigenous communities are powerful here. They do so much stuff. So all of those things, I think, are what are really great about this community is that what the the ancestral knowledge and culture that's here that we can tap into and learn from is so powerful. And I love sharing that wherever I go, whenever I'm talking about my work. Yeah, it. Okay, so a couple of things to unpack here. The the first one, the simpler one, is the Cheech Center, mm -hmm. which I've heard a lot about. Yeah. What do you know about it, brother? Because mm -hmm. I, I'm like, I'm just waiting for the moment it opens. Tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, so, you know, um, I, so I'm a little bit connected to it because of the Riverside Latino Network, which, again, uh, speaks to just the power of our community. I love um, the Riverside Latino Network. They're super passionate about helping students, you know, getting folks involved in politics and community change. You know, they work with all of the local districts, all of the local um, elected officials, so on and so forth. So they're really powerful in terms of that work. 
Um, but they, in conjunction with stakeholders from UCR and other folks, um, really, um, you know, worked closely with Chich Medin, a famous, um, you know, TV and movie star actor, um, to bring his um, uh, Chicano art collection to Riverside. And um, Cheech's work is, uh, or Cheech's collection, I'm sorry, is nationally recognized. He has a plethora of Chicano art. And um, before I get into just the minutia of what Chicano art is um, differently from that, this is going to make um, us a, a cultural center in that um, all of these important works from, you know, a historically powerful and embattled community will be on display for people to see. Um, and we're talking, you know, paintings, murals, sculptures, all of that all here. Um, and it's really going to help us realize one that again, Chicanos are very powerful. They have a creative talent and we have this wealth of, you know, cultural production that people can see. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really cool. Um, an example of this is, uh, uh I, I remember back to when I went to LACMA, the LA museum mm -hmm. of contemporary art. And, um, uh, we, I had seen this piece called, uh, I, th I think it was called Borderlands. And it was on Chicana art. And it was really cool because I saw these great pieces by Frida Kahlo. And I saw other like uh, more uh, Americanist um, pieces that were just super impressive to see. And so, you know, when we think about Chicano art, I think a lot of folks are, can, you know, kind of centered on the idea of like what was spray painted on the back of a lowrider. And I think that's, you know, such a disservice to what it is because there are folks that do amazing murals. They're all over Los Angeles and San Diego, for example. We have some examples here in downtown Riverside that you can see. Um, all of that's really important. We have, you know, really awesome uh, other kinds of freestanding pieces that are like sculptures and stuff like that, um, that I think are really powerful to learn from. Many of them engage in, you know, important, important political discussions. So, um, for example, you know, during the 1960s, we had uh, folks talking about farm worker struggles, like in these art pieces, which was super mm -hmm. powerful. Um, you know, one that comes to mind is the Sun Mad Raisins um, piece. So folks may remember Sun Made Raisins with the little uh, mujeres who's got her grapes that are going to turn into raisins. And then during the 1960s and 70s, there was recognition that farm workers are getting ex exposed to pesticides. Many of those farm workers are actually here in our area, right over in the in the kind of Palm Desert area and, and in close by. And so, um, you know, the critique that was put forth through this son, Mad Raisins, was, uh, uh, you know, a mujeres, but as her in skeleton, basically showing that, you know, the conditions that farm workers were in picking these grapes that everybody wanted to eat was actually killing them. Right. And so in doing that, you know, they were honoring the struggle. They were doing that cultural critique. They were creating a powerful piece of art. And so that's what we're going to see in the cheese centers. We're going to see, you know, one, this creative talent that's within our community, but also this ability to engage critically with issues in you know our spaces that are going on that need more recognition right and, mm -hmm. and there's so much still going on right we still have covid we still have housing crisis we have food you know food insecurity we have housing insecurity all of those things all going on and so um, i think it's a really important piece to do this and, and again because of the wealth and diversity that's here to have a art installation um, that features art from the community is going to be so powerful there's going to be so many young kids you know, across these school districts, across these areas that are going to see that, they're going to realize that they can do this too, that they can be a part of this and that their, you know, their artwork in this sense is, is powerful. And so I think that's what's going to be really awesome about the Chief Center is that you're just going to see amazing artwork for, you know, the past, you know, almost what, like 70 years now running um, in a space that's going to honor, you know, an important community, you know, here in the Riverside area, here in the California area. Um, and, you know, uh, all kinds of people are going to be able to learn from this, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And our students are going to be inspired to enact that, that social change through art, mm -hmm. which is... You can uh, when is it projected to open? I think fall of this year. Okay. Yeah. So coming up. And, and a lot of it got delayed because of COVID. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and then, you know, um, so Riverside is building a brand new library. And then the former library is going to be the Cheech Center. So I think there's some some work to do there. Uh, I will follow up and I'll, I'll give that information to, to folks, but um, it is coming pretty soon and I believe it'll be by the end of this year that it's going to open up. That would be phenomenal. Super exciting. that's something, when we heard about the, the Cheech Center coming out, the first thing that we were thinking, we need to send as many of our students out because they will be hosting field mm -hmm. trips. And yep. that's just the first 
the first time that students can be, you know, potentially exposed to it mm-hmm. through 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 something that we can do here in, in the school district for sure. Yeah. And even that, like, you know, we're not having to send folks hours away for this, right? right. It's, it's in our back door. And I think that's what's really powerful to think about is that, you know, we're no longer thinking of art as something that is in San Francisco or in Los Angeles or in San Diego. It's right here, right? And Accessible. I think that's really important. It's in our community. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, we don't always take advantage of, of what's around us. Mm-hmm. And so we need to make sure that we do, yeah. that we acknowledge that it's around us. Um, yeah, so, so many wonderful, positive things that are happening in our community. And so we'll just switch on over to maybe in your opinion, Dr. Uh, Frank, what do you think are those very much needed changes, mm-hmm. if any, um, that that we must really act on as a community. Yeah, so um, I think we're all educators here, right? And so education is always the biggest part of this, right? And, um, you know, the prioritization of, of expenditures and focus on education, I think, is super, super key, um, you know, uh, not to get into a, a broader political debate, but one thing that I, you know, I'm really remiss about is that, you know, we get less than one third of the overall federal expenditures, um, you know, in terms of discretionary spending versus, you know, half of that going to the military. And I think that's, you know, as much as I, I love our service members and I and I thank them for their service immensely, I think there it, there is a disproportionality that we need to recognize and, and understand that a way that we can fix many of the problems here. Um, is through education, right? By mm-hmm. getting, you know, school, you know, students in schools doing that work, so on and so forth. Um, and so the more that the more that we can emphasize education early on, you know, having key, you know, pre-K, uh, my daughter was in pre-K from six weeks on, you know, she was uh, trilingual, she could speak Spanish, she could sign language, because they taught her sign language before she was actually nice. verbal. Uh, and then, you know, obviously she speaks English, you know, she's super, super smart. And so I see that power all the time. And so the more and more that we can emphasize education, I think is super key with that, you know, we want to make sure that we're offering ethnic studies. We know that it has all of those benefits, um, increased attendance rates, GPA rates, student engagement, college aspirations, all of that. Um, you know, we also want to recognize gender, you know, we want to make sure that we're thinking about gender issues in our schools um, uh, and thinking about our students from intersectional backgrounds with LGBT plus and disability and adding courses that honor their experiences and celebrate their their gifts and, and also challenge, you know, whatever barriers that they're facing. And so I think those are really key ways that we can do this. Um, another thing that I've thought about, and I, I'm always going to forget the scholar, but I, I remember this from NPR and, and this kind of stuck with me a long time ago. But it was about making schools more of an all-day experience in that we have an opportunity for after schools are done, that students just don't go home, but that we center our communities around schools. And what I mean by this is that when we think about education, we send our kids to school, they spend their time there, they learn, and they go home. But we don't do enough, I think, and, and it's not the fault of the schools by any means. I think it's a cultural conversation. It's about trying to create um, the schools as a central cultural hub where parents can come together and meet one another and talk amongst themselves, to have kids play together, to have multi-generational groupings also interact and intermix. Maybe they have community dinners. Maybe there's movie nights. Maybe there's other types of activities. We've done some very successful ones here with Alverde in terms of our Loteria uh, projects. Those kinds of things I think are really important because the more and more that we can have families together in shared spaces talking, we can you know um, break down those social barriers. We can think about the importance of education. If there are things that we need to change in our schools, we can have those folks talking to each other. Um, we can get students engaged in that process, thinking about that. Again, you know, if they can see it, they can do it just like with the Cheat Center. And so I think those are really key. And so I think for me, the biggest change that has to happen um, you know, maybe in the 2020s, now that we're in the 2020s and really into it in the 2022 era is really focusing and prioritizing education from literally like infancy through, you know, whatever that looks like doctoral programs, you know, higher education and having that, um, guide all decisions that we make. If we are prioritizing education and becoming a more and more educated society, issues of climate change, issues of, um, you know, uh, disproportionality in terms of whatever that social problem is, all of those things can be addressed because we're thinking, we're learning, we're actively wanting to learn more. And it becomes embedded so early on that uh, folks don't think that once they, you know, graduate high school, it's done, that they actually engage in lifelong learning. And 
And in that, you know, they're they're doing the work of wanting to continue to change either themselves or their society because they're always wanting to learn, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, for sure. Ooh, lots of things to to think about, but mm-hmm. definitely the it really what I hear you saying too. It really starts with the funding, the dedication of funds, mm-hmm. in order for us to be able to do all that that we need to do mm-hmm. to enact this social change. You mentioned a, a little bit about the need for us to mm-hmm. address the gender um, and our LGBTQ communities' uh, needs, and and Valverde is embarking on this journey of us really amplifying efforts mm-hmm. in order for us to address this in our community in our district for, for that matter. And so what are in, in, in terms of um, addressing our students through their gender identity, mm-hmm. what's the most important initial message mm-hmm. that you would say? Yeah. So, um, you know, prioritizing gender studies courses, I think is always important, right? Like if we can center the contributions of our, our female identified and LGBT plus identified groups in all contributions, right? Science, history, so on and so forth is always really key. Um, and obviously women of color, you know, as well, just because they've been so historically over, you know, over marginalized, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, if there's even, if there's even that term, right. I think is really important. Another thing that we want to think about too is relationality. Right. And I think a lot of this boils down. One of the things that, um, you know, I, I've taken away as a, you know, cisgender heterosexual male from feminist teachings is thinking about, um, my gender relationalities. Right. So I, you know, I have a partner who's female. I have a daughter who's female, Um, And so what I'm always thinking about is what is my role as a man? How can I minimize the the duties that are designated to either and try to make that much more equitable? And I think one thing that we can do as uh, again, as a society is is to amplify the contributions of women because they've been doing stuff forever. Right. From, you know, the everyday household stuff to, you know, fighting in wars to being innovators in medicine and science, so on and so forth. So showing that. They are equal, right, in, in all that academic sense, but also creating conversations between, um, you know, young people generally about what are healthy relationships, right? How do you form healthy social relationships, romantic relationships, intimate relationships with different partners and do so in a way that doesn't, you know, reify isms, violence, so on and so forth. And so it's it's the twofold, right? Like if we think about it with ethnic studies, what has been instrumental in terms of minimizing bias and discrimination is by amplifying those voices and having folks across different communities have important conversations of what about what those relationships are. Like with gender, it's the same thing. We want to amplify the voices and the contributions of those important people in those lives. So that way those students understand that they can do that too. Again, that kind of like line of sight thing that I mentioned with the Chicano Art Museum. And then secondly, we want to say, look, people have relationships and and form various types of social bonds that are, you know, romantic, social, and intimate. And we want to make sure that that's also healthy, right? That they're able to understand, you know, issues and so on and so forth and get help if needed or, or, or just able to do it earlier on. And I think those are ways in which we can do more to support, um, you know, gender equity, um, you know, to minimize patriarchy or whatever that looks like by showing folks that, Again, you know, um, there aren't, you know, these artificial divisions between men and women or, you know, um, you know, uh, heterosexual versus non-heterosexual or heteronormative folks. Um, And that uh, whoever they decide to um, uh, associate with in whatever way that that's healthy, that it's beautiful and that we want to honor it. And that way, you know, we can, um, again, just make sure that there's this kind of sense of, I guess, love, right, for everybody in that. And I think that's what you know valverde does very well you know in terms of their diversity and then it's just that's the next step right is, is moving forward on gender now that we know that this is working in this way we can do this in other in other avenues and that's what's been true of everything right we see this with electric cars when we when we move towards sustainability in one thing we see is sustainability working in other things and then that becomes more sustainable and then so on and so forth right it's this trickle down effect and so i think that's where it, where it will really help with gender is thinking about how we can create those courses and those learning opportunities for young people to understand the value of, you know, of women and LGBT plus. And then, you know, if they want to form whatever social relationships that they do so in healthy manners. Right. And it's, it's like, we already have the platform, the ethnic studies platform for that matter, but mm-hmm. we could do it anywhere. Okay. Now we really do need to start addressing this, the, the, the gender identity, our students identity. We're trying to address it at all mm-hmm. times throughout all of their teaching and learning environment, but 
we need to really specifically focus on this because mm. it really deserves that attention. Mm. Um, I was just looking at some data and um, just very um, amazed at the relation between suicide rates and students not feeling affirmed or accepted because mm -hmm. of their sexual orientation. And so that's, you know, that's what really led me to ask you this question. Like, mm -hmm. what, what is the, wh what do we want teachers to, to know immediately? Like, we all can do something, you know, about being responsive to this need. Yeah, and, and it's really a simple political choice, right? Like, um, pronoun choices. I, I know that that's been a big kind of sticking point in the cultural moment. And, and I, I, I was talking with my, my partner about this and I was like, you know what, it really doesn't take that much work to use the pronoun choice that somebody wants. And mm -hmm. I, and I understand, you know, we are, you know, it's kind of like the old dog doesn't want to learn the new trick. Right. Mm -hmm. But, but realistically, all of these things are very, very simple. Mm -hmm. it, it doesn't take a lot of, a, a lot of intellectual work or a lot of heavy lifting to add in another writer's perspective, right. Or to teach from a different standpoint, it takes a little bit but um, I think we've been unfairly programmed to want to stay in our lane. But the problem is, is when the lane and the road continues to break down and be bumpy. And as you mentioned, right, there's these gleaning and glaring data points that say, look, we have to do something. We need to take that that extra step and do that because why do we want to lose somebody? Why? Mm -hmm. and, and ultimately, you know, like with the, the conversation about it, just investing in education more generally, these are kids, right? Mm -hmm. And we, you know, I'm not trying to infantilize children in any way, shape, and form, but uh, but we always want to be cognizant, like, these are kids that we're losing in the mm -hmm. system, right? And we don't need to. It, it doesn't take that much mm -hmm. work. And the more and more we invest in them, the more and more you invest in people generally across the board from, you know, early infant to college student to somebody who's, you know, coming out of recovery or whatever that looks like, the more love and investment you give in that person, the more that they are going to be able to do more with themselves, right? And so that's what we have to recognize is that those small changes will really lead to important gains for us overall, right? Mm -hmm. You know, a dollar invested in a person yields $7 in return, right? And that's true across context. No, that's, that's so true. I love what you're saying. And it's so true. Like some of these things are so simple for us to do, but we're just so hung up on what we're thinking. No, but that's right. Like it needs to make so much sense to us. Mm -hmm. We need to be in so much internal agreement about us doing things that we, it's, we're not thinking about how hard or how simple it is. It's just, no, it doesn't make sense for me. So I'm not going to do it without really empathizing and saying, Hey, if this is going to help affirm another person, why not do it? It's not taking much from mm -hmm. me, right? Mm -hmm. And one of the simplest practices that I just, you know, just came to realize is just have a, a, a poster, something that says, I affirm, you mm -hmm. know, I am an affirming person or I accept, you can talk to me about it or, or not, but just mm -hmm. say, you're welcome to mm -hmm. be in my classroom, in my space. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I accept you for who you are, mm -hmm. period. What I have to ask you next is a very obvious question, mm -hmm. but I just, maybe if you can elaborate mm -hmm. on how is your position, your privilege, your power. And the reason why we ask this question this way is because a lot of the times we really, well, and I've heard this, and this is a very uh, personal opinion that I have that I hear and, mm -hmm. and I hear people oh, I don't have privilege. I'm not white. I don't have privilege. I'm not a male. I don't have privilege. But I authentically believe that we all have some kind of privilege, some mm -hmm. kind of power, some kind of impact that mm -hmm. we can make on, you know, just our surroundings, right. um, whatever that, that would be. And so how um, does your uh, position, what kind of privilege, what kind of status do you have mm -hmm. to enact the very much needed change? Yeah. So, you know, um, even though I am biracial and, and, you know, recognize myself as a as a historically ethnic slash mar uh, racially um, marginalized individual, I still have privilege as a male. Right. So as a cisgender heterosexual male, I have a certain level of privilege of being able-bodied. I have privilege, right? Mm -hmm. And in, so in both of those elements, um, you know, I want to recognize gender diversity. And so one thing that, you know, we've been doing at LBCC and we're really cognizant of is taking, you know, dramatic steps towards increasing our gender diversity. So um, in our hiring priorities, we're thinking about, you know, hiring women of color to make our ethnic studies program much more diverse. Um, uh, I'm also going to be serving on other hiring committees for my college, um, for full-time faculty. And that's my priority is to, to look for and seek out, you know, and obviously in a, in a very neutral and unbiased way, 
um, you know, qualified female candidates to fill those roles because we do want more gender diversity in our colleges. Um, like with um, the overwhelming whiteness in K-12 schools, there's very overwhelmingly male in community college spaces. I believe community colleges um, by the numbers are about 73% white males in terms of full-time tenured faculty. And that's really important because when you are a full-timer, you know, that gives you a salary and benefits, so on and so forth. Tenure is very important because that's job security, you know, and so we want to make sure that we have folks that we, one, that we're recruiting, you know, qualified people that can be there, that can be change agents in that space, but also giving them the job um, security and economic security to be viable, right? We don't want these folks to have to struggle to make ends meet, so on and so forth, be hopping around colleges. And, you know, the more secure you are in your job, the more you can do, right? Like right now, as an adjunct, when I was teaching, I always wanted to be involved on colleges, campuses. I wanted to help be a, a student organization leader or, you know, do some other kind of committee work, but wasn't able to because I just didn't have the, the political capital to do so. But now, um, you know, I was able to pass a, a new course in my, uh, or I just wrote a brand new course for my college. Um, we're getting ready to establish an ethnic studies major at our college. Um, you know, I'm on a bunch of other different committees that are trying to do stuff and I'm only able to do that now because I'm a full-timer. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I'm thinking about is, okay, now somebody gave me a shot as an ethnic racial minority in this college, but now I have a degree of privilege, i.e. my maleness, my mm -hmm. able-bodiedness, my, you know, cisgenderness. How can I do something like that for somebody who is, you know, gender diverse from me or does not have that same background. So that way they have that same opportunity. Right. And that's what I'm thinking about all the time is, you know, it, even though ethnic studies was the big fight, not fight here, because we did a great job and we had a lot of community support here at Valverde. But, you know, we, what we're thinking about now is how do we honor gender? Right. How do we honor mm -hmm. ability? How do we do these things? There's there's always a little bit extra that we can do. And so one, the way that you recognize that is to say, OK, as you mentioned, Adriana, we all have a degree of privilege, right? Whatever that looks like, whether we're middle class, whatever whatever those pieces are, there's always a little bit more that we can do. So as a result of that, if we've thought that we've made it, then we need to stop and take some time to critically reflect and say, okay, if I've made it, who hasn't made it? Mm. Why haven't they made it? And what can I do to make that change, right? And so in my role now as a full-time professor, I'm thinking about, you know, can I include courses on gender? Can I hire, you know, genderly or able-bodiedly diverse individuals that can reflect my student population? Are there other things in the college that I can do to support um, my female colleagues, my female students, my LGBT plus colleagues and students, whatever that looks like, right? I'm always taking that extra step, going that extra mile. And that goes back to the conversation that we're having about education is that if we are in this mindset that we constantly want to learn and be on a path to self-improvement, this is a part of that work, right? And, and I know as somebody who, you know, again, you know, earned a PhD and has, you know, I dedicated almost 16 years of my life to higher education, you know, beyond that, I, I spent a lot of time in school after what was considered to be the minimum <laughs> cutoff, right? Mm -hmm. And and although, you know, whether you want to think of it as time wasted or time well spent, either way, um, it was great for me to have that opportunity because now I want to learn. I, I'm an NPR hog because I love knowing what's going on and learning and learning and learning. And, and that's helped me. Um, Think about how I can make more and more changes in my community because I'm doing this right. And then, you know, the only way that I was able to recognize my privilege as a cisgender heterosexual male is by taking these classes, by mm. being in these conversations, by doing this work. And that, and that's what I'm doing now in terms of using that privilege is to honor the voices of women and, and LGBT folks and make more um, concerted decisions in hiring and, and other types of priorities that will make sure that they're a part of those collegiate college conversations, right? Yeah, and it starts with self-awareness. Like, really, where do, where do I stand in society? What do I represent here in society? How can I become aware and how can I bring awareness to others that there is privilege and power within their positions? And there's power and leadership everywhere, mm -hmm. everywhere from any seat, for sure. Um, uh, Dr. Frank, do you think, in your opinion, um, that our society or even a local community, do you think that we respond well to the inequities, to the lack of access that we very much clearly have? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I will say that I think um, local communities do a great job of this because they have the pulse on what's going on. And to a certain extent, um, you know, we probably can't get everything um, but as we mentioned with education, it's because there isn't a lot of in money invested, 
Um, what I will say is, uh, you know, seeing what Valverde does to respond to families, I think is amazing. And, and through the pandemic, you know, you were in, uh, the leadership here was instrumental in terms of, you know, helping folks out here. Um, you know, Riverside's done a lot to, to honor families and do that work. You know, we were sanctuary city. We went to bat for that. Mm -hmm. And even after countless attacks by conservative forces, both in and out of, of the county area or the city area, you know, we really were firmly believed in our undocumented community and supported them and, and were forthright in doing that. So I, I do think that we do a good job. I don't think at the larger level we do enough. And it's sad because there's the data that's out there, right? We know that during pandemic, there was a lot of issues with tech access. There was a great opportunity to spend more money to help students with that. And we just didn't do it. And it was frustrating because I was an educator. I was working with educators. My partner is an educator. And we were constantly frustrated by that. And it wasn't the district's fault in any way, shape, and form. It was just the money was not there, period, right? And so um, I will say that the current administration is doing more. So I don't, I don't want to just recognize President Biden. I voted for him. I think he's a great person. Um, but again, right, there's budget priorities that we need to do. Um, likewise, um, you know, there's a lot of conversations and things that are out there in our society, you know, um, sexual assault, domestic violence are huge. We still don't do enough for those. We need, you know, we know what we need to do, but we just don't do it. And, and I think it goes back to the pronoun conversations, the political will choice. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm, I'm thankful even today at you know, one of the biggest issues in education in terms of the community college space is the prioritization of hiring adjuncts or part-timers over full-timers. And that's been a huge inequity issue because as I mentioned earlier, full-time faculty have job security, they feel more vested in the college, so on and so forth. Um, a lot of students want to work with full-time faculty because those are the folks that write them letters of recommendation, become their mentors, so on and so forth. And so uh, a lot of that um, issue, again, is we, we have these data sets that show us, you know, housing insecurity, food insecurity, um, public health problems, so on and so forth. They're all there, but we're just not doing enough to do it. And I think what is giving me hope, at least now, is that our folks are making more and more inroads into the political spaces to make those decisions, right? We're seeing more diversity in race and gender in elected offices. They're bringing their experiences with them to these conversations, to making um, policy priorities, right? Whether that's canceling student loan debt, um, you know, universal basic income, Medicare for all, universal pre-K, whatever that looks like. Those, those are becoming much more... Um, uh, everyday debates in in houses, or I'm sorry, in um, legislated offices, where before, when I was a, a kid in the 90s, those were like pipe dreams of socialism. Mm. That was not even a part of the conversation, <laughs> right? So we're, we're seeing that. We still aren't there yet. Mm -hmm. So we, like with my own conversation about my privilege, right? Like we, some are making it, not enough folks have made it. We know what we need to do to make it. And so what we need to do as individuals say, look, we're doing these great things in our communities. How do we go to the state offices, right? How do we go to the state legislators, push that there? How do we go to the federal legislator? How do we go to Congress and say, look, we need this. You know, we need to have um, rent uh, controls. We need to have, you know, support for education. We need to do more to support homeless folks, whatever that looks like, right? All that information's there. It's, it's easily mineable, datable, whatever that looks like. It's all clear cut. It's now about taking the local fight to the national level and saying, look, this is the things that we can do and it's going to produce a better society. So yeah, I think locally we're doing a good job. You know, there's, there's some hiccups here and there, but you know, we are just small, we are small in our, in our force, but you know, we can, we can do more if the federal government will also back us up. And that's the conversation I think, or that's the next step in that conversation. Yeah. Listening, mm -hmm. deep, deep listening, not just listen for one day. Um, but it reminds me of the knowing and doing gap you're mm -hmm. you're talking about. Like we know what we need to do, mm -hmm. but between the knowing and the doing, there's a humongous gap mm -hmm. of us actually doing some action items there. Um, and so let's take it back to a little bit of a positive in a sense of in your in in your perspective, what would be the ideal society? And I know it's like such a broad, but just focus on, you know, just a couple of things that you, you think would be ideal for you to see mm -hmm. um, in the next, I don't know, five, 10 years. Yeah. So, um, you know, one, I think the first thing is if I could see universal pre-K, 
Um, so, so I'm going to do this in a selfish way, although yes, it shouldn't be selfish. Yes, yes. Uh, so, um, we're 27 weeks pregnant. Uh, Ooh, our baby's due in April. Thank you. Yay. Uh, and so, you know, thinking about that, um, you know, universal pre-K is so instrumental. It was so, you know, I had to pay for pre-K for, for my first daughter. Um, but I saw so much benefit. And so if we can have more, more education is never going to be a bad thing. Let's just put it mm-hmm. that way. Uh, so, you know, more education early on. Um, I think our family leave is deplorable. Um, you know, out of a hundred and some odd developed nations, we're the only one that does not have universal uh, or does not have, you know, paid family leave. Um, Jordan actually beats us. I, mm. I, so Jordan gives like uh, 29 days of, of paid family leave. And I was like, so a, a developing Islamic centered country has more paid family leave than the richest country in the world. That, that should be alarming to anybody <laughs> period. Right. Um, you know, and so what, you know, I mean, Chile has uh, free higher education. Um, Germany has free higher education. So many institutions do free higher education, free pre-K, more family leave, like it, it's going back to investing in the everyday person. And I think that's the biggest piece yeah. right now. So an ideal society for me has, you know, universal pre-K, has universal higher education, has more family leave, you know, considers reducing the hours of work. I mean, you know, I was promised a George Jetson society when I was a kid. I thought I was going to be able to go to an office and push a button in my flying car, <laughs> you know, and that was, you know, that cartoon came out in the 60s and 70s mm-hmm. and we're still not even there today, right? Even though we are making a lot of advancements. Um, so, you know, a uh, reduction in the workday to, you know, give folks time to be with their families, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and doing so, I think it's just going to make us a better society, right? We, we're working a lot, we're commuting a lot, we're doing a lot of things that are not giving us the joy that we need. And I think if we can, um, you know, uh, make that better with more education and some time off to help, you know, be with our families, especially right now with everything that's going on, it's just going to make everything better, you know? And then obviously, you know, it's all the the basic stuff, right? We need to end world hunger. We need to go Mm -hmm. move away from fossil fuels, you know, all that stuff that we know are, you know, detrimental to our society that are, you know, keeping folks in poverty. Those kinds of things I think will really help us get to that place of, of true equality, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's what we're aiming for. And I think again, education is going to get folks to think and be critically self-reflective, to think about their power and privilege, to make those choices and discussions, right? They're going to learn about these things. They're going to want to be with their families. They're going to want to support their community members. They're going to do all that, right? And so it, it just becomes full circle. So. Yeah. Oh, gosh. So you're, you're making me think of like the family leave, for example, mm-hmm. and how other countries rate so high in communal, mm-hmm. you know, they're collectivist society, mm-hmm. societies, and our society is so individualistic. And mm-hmm. I wonder if there's that correlation of like, we don't need, see the need for us to stay in communion when a child is born. Mm-hmm. Like, no, you, you you know, the child's born, the child's born, and they can just live on, and then we live on at work. Yeah. So that's what it makes me think of when you're saying, and it's so true, and I have seen the data where other countries have six months mm-hmm. of family leave, and we have six weeks, even for the mother. Six weeks is not enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we haven't done much about it. And then it just makes me think too about just the recent, the great resignation that Mm. we're all hearing about and how many moms, how many, uh, well, women, but, um, a lot of it has been correlated with moms, like really realizing that they have really been abandoning their kids for Mm. work. And through the pandemic, they've realized like, oh no, like this, there's a different way to do life. I can actually be there for my kids. Mm -hmm. And so they're just deciding at greater numbers to stay home Mm -hmm. because we finally hit us like, Mm -hmm. wow, we've been living this work, 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 work. And there's other ways we can do that. And if we addressed what you both are talking about, imagine how much less of an issue mental health would be in our society. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because stress on moms is so hard, right? Like, I mean... You know, uh, I was a single parent when I was um, finishing my doctoral program or early in my doctoral program before I met my my current partner. And I mean, it was a lot, right? Like I was in school, I was reading, she's napping, I'm trying to finish a paper, mm. doing the stuff, you know, and the, and the sad part is, is that, you know, I'm doing what I need to do to better myself. So that way I can be a good role model for her and provide economic security, but I'm not spending time with her. And so Mm -hmm. it becomes this weird paradox where being a good parent means being with your kid. 
but then you're not working. Well, then you're not being a good parent because mm-hmm. you're not providing. So, <laughs> and those things shouldn't be at odds with no. each other, right? They mm-hmm. should be collective. And so, and, and one thing that I, and I'm really glad you mentioned the communal piece is like, if other countries realize that the communality in raising a child from birth to whatever that looks like right, into adulthood is important, then there's something that we need to learn from that, right? Because, um, you know, we are, you know, parents ourselves. We know that it's not one person who does that work. It's everybody, mm-hmm. right? It's abuelos, it's deals, yes. it's everybody yes. that that's a part of that conversation. And so, I, I mean, I can't teach my daughter everything. I know that, right? Like, I am, I know certain things, um, but there are certain things that I'm going to stop at, right? And and there are a lot of traditions that I want her to learn from my grandparents or from her parents, you know, whatever else, right? And so, if we can think more that each of us has a role in raising every child on the planet, for that mm-hmm. matter, um, in addition to just the ones that are here, and then, again, going back to the education conversation, investing that part in the education piece and valuing that work that educators do, you know, changes that entire discourse, right? It it becomes more about how do we think about what we need to do for everybody to be successful versus what do I need to do for just me to be successful? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or even separating both. Like, okay, so there's wonderful resources for new newborns, for example, and we're just going to work towards making that successful, that journey successful, and then you by yourself, dad, and you by yourself, mom. Mm-hmm. So everybody's kind of just taking on their own, and we don't have a system where we're developing the family together mm-hmm. by providing the appropriate resources because you can do that all day long, but you won't get paid. Mm-hmm. You know, you won't get medical care. You won't get anything if you decide that you want to grow together as a family, mm-hmm. right? And I see that, like I visit Mexico a lot, and I see that with my family members. They, they grow together. I mean, there's multi-generational families and they're all like you say the abuelos the tias the tios the cousins everybody's just together growing in in, together Mm -hmm. old growing old Mm -hmm. (laughs) together and it's a beautiful sight to see for sure um dr frank do you think there is hope for the future yeah and i mean (laughs) i would if i was if i didn't answer this question in the affirmative i think i'd be a pretty uh poor educator but uh (laughs) I'm like, hey, just seeing <laughs> the current reality, who right. knows? Who knows? Uh, yeah, and, and she's, every day the news just, just gives me more and more gray hairs, I think. Um, but, yes, I do. Um, you know, I, I think it's really instrumental. Um, you know, we've seen, you know, unfortunately, recently we've seen a lot of, of really instrumental people pass, you know, and, and such as the cycle of life due to age and stuff like that. So, you know, we, we do see that. But I do see kids – doing great things all the time. And I do see um, changes happening more and more, right? We do have folks still fighting these good fights for family medical leave to end student loan debt, um, to provide housing security. Um, And, you know, I think this next, especially since we're moving into a midterm election year, I think that's going to be really big. So we're going to see a lot of that change come forward. Um, And so, yeah, I I mean, I see it coming all the time. You know, we are doing great work here at Valverde, expanding ethnic studies, you know, getting into gender studies and gender equity conversations. So I think that's really instrumental. Um, The County Office of Education is uh, heading up and leading some work on providing more um, uh, county-wide supports for ethnic studies, which we're, you know, super excited about. Um, You know, my position right now at Long Beach City College is we're moving forward. We're hiring folks. We're supporting students. We're doing those things that I think are really important. And so, yeah, I I have a lot of hope that this next generation who has survived, you know, COVID now that has seen, you know, a, you know, the, the most ardent and crazy realities of police brutality and other things become active and, and start to see, you know, issues from the Rodney King era to now being a, a quintessential part of conversations that need to be changed. So I think we are at a point where, you know, we're going to see much more civic engagement. We're going to see kids really active and wanting to learn and wanting to do things. And so we're in a good position to have a lot of hope for the future and actually see that future become much brighter. Yeah. Beautiful. Beautiful. I asked, I have to share with you, I asked my daughters this question Mm -hmm. and they were like, it took them a minute, you know, and it's just a sad moment to Mm -hmm. see that it's actually taking us a a minute to say, to think, is there hope? But everything that you mentioned is true and we're resilient human beings and we're this too shall pass that's what i'd like to think 
Um, the one of the final things that we wanted to ask you, Dr. Perez, is what is your message to the world? Mm-hmm. I had an aunt who uh, passed away a couple of years ago, and um, I had uh, she uh, was a nurse. Um, she had glioblastoma and succumbed to um, complications of the cancer as it spread um, into her spinal cord. And um, her last words to us as we were trying to give her some medication um, in the final stages of her passing was just one minute. And what was interesting about it was it was mostly her just asking us to give her a second to, to kind of think. Um, but we took it as a message to take an extra minute, to take an extra minute to think about what's going on around us and think about what we can do better. Mm-hmm. And I think that has been the the undergirding part of this conversation. Or the, that's been the substructure of this conversation today is to take an extra minute to do the education you need to take an extra minute to be with your family, to take an extra minute and ask yourself what privilege you have and what can you do to make better. And I think that's the message that I want the world to take is take an extra minute. You don't need to do that extra work thing. You don't need to answer that extra email. You don't need to do that extra thing. Read a book, walk outside, be with your family, play with your kids, play with your dog, play with your pets, whatever that looks like. Get mm. in touch with somebody you haven't talked to in a long time. Take that extra minute, just one minute, and be there for somebody who needs it because that's going to be the that's going to be that deciding factor of that kid that becomes a statistic or becomes a legislator. That's going to be the difference between the person on the street who feels like they're nothing or feels like somebody matters or fe- feels like somebody cares about them. So that's what I want everybody to know is take an extra minute, do what you need to do, do what you need to do for yourself so that way we can, you know, take those extra steps and just one minute from everybody will make this world a better place. Oh. And yes, mic dropped right there, right there, dropping the mic. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Perez. We appreciate your knowledge, your wisdom um, that you've uh, been able to share with us today. Uh, We congratulate you again on your baby. So like five years, 10 years from now, when your baby hears this, oh, he he or she. Uh, We don't know. You don't know. Okay. So we don't know. It, proud moment for mm-hmm. and for of course for your your daughter right now mm-hmm. and and for all of the your loved ones and your family we appreciate you we thank you and we hope to do this again absolutely thank you so much for having me and i really appreciate your time guys thank, thank you, you thank, thank you. you and a huge thank you to all of our listeners for opening your hearts and your minds to our mindful conversations matter podcast we challenge you to continue these conversations with your family and friends And please reflect on ways you can impact the world one conversation and one act at a time. Until next time, peace. peace.